Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Today we're going to cover the fascinating history of induced hypothermia. Now we did touch on this briefly in a previous episode, but today we're going to explore it in more detail. The main body of this podcast was written by David Warmflash, MD, a researcher in aerospace medicine and astrobiology, and an author who is fascinated with the history of science and medicine. Apropos to this podcast episode, David recently authored a Medscape story on the future of therapeutic hypothermia for stroke. He is working on a book about the biomedical issues of humanity's expansion into space, which should be very interesting. But while waiting for that, check out his 2019 book, Moon, an Illustrated History from Ancient Myths to the Colonies of Tomorrow, which chronicles the influence of Earth's planetary companion on humans and civilization. All right, having said that, it's time to settle in, chill out, and begin this episode of Legends of Surgery. Back in episode 36, we met Dr. Wilfred Gordon Bigelow, the Canadian cardiac surgeon who pioneered the field of induced hypothermia to enable open-heart surgery. This was in the post-World War II era, when cardiopulmonary bypass, aka the heart-lung machine, was under development, but not yet ready for prime time. Normally, more than a few minutes of circulatory arrest leads to brain damage, but that's at the normal core body temperature of 37 degrees Celsius. American listeners, while medicine in the U.S. still holds stubbornly to the archaic British imperial system for a few things, like patient weight and height and temperature when it rises above normal, the metric system otherwise dominates, including for measuring body temperature when it's below normal. So all temperatures from here onward are Celsius. Now, quick trivia question. Which countries continue to use the imperial system other than the United States? If you said Liberia and Myanmar, you are a trivia master. Now, one little confession here. In Canada, where we're a sort of blend of Britain and the U.S., we mostly use metric, but many of us still use imperial for a few things, like Fahrenheit for water temperatures, but only for pools or lakes, not for air temperature, where we use Celsius, and feet and inches for height, but not for distance. We're working on it. Anyways, back to the show. Whereas Bigelow found that groundhogs, natural hibernators, could be cooled smoothly to just above zero degrees Celsius, allowing the aorta to be clamped off safely for more than two hours, he also found that hypothermia in dogs produced a range of deadly complications. These include heart block, electrolyte and acid-base disturbances, disruption of the blood clotting system, and increased susceptibility to infection. And today we know they strike humans particularly when core temperatures drop below 32 degrees Celsius. This means beyond the realm of mild hypothermia, but to enable a surgeon to open the heart, do something useful, and close it again, Bigelow found that mild hypothermia was not enough. He had to dip lower into the realm of moderate hypothermia as a consolation prize in lieu of the profound hypothermia that was a cakewalk for groundhogs, but a death sentence for non-hibernators like dogs and humans. He honed in on 28 degrees as a kind of Goldilocks temperature, at which complications were at least manageable, while circulatory rest was safe for about eight minutes. Now that may be even less time than a typical surgical resident gets for lunch most days, but as we learned in the Bigelow podcast, it was enough time for Dr. John F. Lewis to perform the first open heart repair of an atrial septal defect at the University of Minnesota in September of 1952. What we did not mention in that episode is that the hypothermia and the five-year-old patient got more attention in the media than the operation itself. Deep freeze girl making rapid recovery is how the New York Times headlined its story. 
and for a brief moment before the heart-lung machine would demote hypothermia to more of an adjuvant role, induced hypothermia was all the rage in the world of surgery. Imagine, for example, that it's late 1952 or early 1953. The place is Korea, where an American soldier is bleeding from the abdominal aorta. The aorta is clamped immediately to keep him from bleeding to death until he can receive an aortic graft, but it had better be soon because critical organs, like the spinal cord and kidneys, are not getting circulation. Army surgeons estimate that circulation must be restored within 20 minutes to avoid spinal cord damage and paralysis. But they know about Bigelow and Lewis. They know about the deep freeze girl and subsequent procedures performed by Lewis, facilitated by hypothermia, so they immersed the wounded soldier in ice. This bought enough time to obtain and graft the needed aortic segment and the patient woke up with no paralysis. Now this wasn't a real scenario from history, but rather an episode of the TV series MASH. An episode that is memorable, particularly for the watch that ticks away at the corner of the screen from the moment that the character Hawkeye Pierce compresses the soldier's aorta against his spine until the moment that the grafted aorta is unclamped. Along with a beautifully written story enhanced with ethical and emotional issues stemming from the fact that the donated aorta must come from another young man who initially is brain dead but not yet clinically dead, the episode boasts a level of accuracy in the history of surgery that is typical of the series. That is except for one humorous moment when the character Charles Emerson Winchester III donates blood for the patient while boasting how the Winchesters have been first in line to donate blood ever since the American Revolutionary War. At the risk of deviating slightly from our topic, it's irresistible to note that blood transfusion was well beyond the capabilities of late 18th century America, and for a few reasons. First, although practitioners of medicine and surgery in that era were experts at getting blood out of the body, the same could not be said about their ability to get blood back inside. Prior to William Harvey's work on the vascular system in the 1600s, doctors were not even quite sure where the blood was supposed to go. Some early experiments with transfusion involved the recipient receiving blood, usually non-human blood, orally. That is, drinking it, usually as part of some cultic practice. Even after Harvey's discovery, there was the issue of how to access blood vessels. The history of blood vessel cannulation, which is the introduction of a tube into a blood vessel, could be the focus of an entire podcast episode. While there were attempts to access blood vessels through porcupine quills, early modern times also saw people collecting blood through blood vessel incisions and trying to infuse the blood intravenously through a funnel in which the blood would tend to clot. There also were attempts to connect a donor's artery to a recipient's vein so that the higher pressure in the artery would send the blood in the desired direction. None of this worked well, and as you can imagine, the mortality rate was high. It was not until the mid-19th century that needles and catheters became available for reliably cannulating veins. In 1881, this capability allowed Dr. William Stuart Halstead, a 29-year-old New York City surgeon at the time, see Podcast 35, to save the life of his sister, who had lost a lot of blood in childbirth, by drawing some of his own blood and infusing it into her immediately before it had time to clot. It wasn't until the turn of the 20th century that the Austrian physician researcher, Dr. Karl Landsteiner, discovered what we now call the ABO blood groupings that determine who can receive blood from whom. Halstead's sister was very lucky that she and her brother happened to be matched appropriately for him to donate to her without deadly complications. While Landsteiner's discovery was the key, another important step was the discovery, at the beginning of the First World War, 
that sodium citrate could prevent donated blood from clotting. The citrate effect was discovered by doctors Albert Huston, Louis Agote, and Richard Lewison independently, each working on a different continent. It sounds odd, but such independent discovery happened frequently in the history of science and medicine. Classic examples include the invention of calculus by Newton and Leibniz, the Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium of population biology, discovered independently by Castle, Weinberg, and Hardy in that order, and the Frank-Starling mechanism of the heart. Note that it's the Frank-Starling mechanism. Whenever you hear some hurried person shorten it to the Starling mechanism, Dr. Starling was a British physiologist who discovered how the strength of cardiac contraction and cardiac output increased in response to an increase in the volume of blood entering the heart. But his first name was not Frank. It was Ernest Henry Starling, and he made his discovery not knowing that Otto Frank, a German physiologist, had discovered mostly the same thing a couple of decades earlier. So take that extra half second to give Otto some credit. In any case, World War I would be the earliest war when the fictional Winchester family could have donated blood. But now back to our main topic. While the advent of cardiopulmonary bypass relegated hypothermia to an adjunct role in open-heart surgery, hypothermia has since found expanding clinical use in and out of the operating room and still beckons to do more. On top of that, hypothermia has a long history, going as far back as ancient Egypt, where physicians used ice to cool febrile patients. And we're talking wealthy patients, as in the pharaohs and their families, since ice had to be either imported long distances on boats or made. But how do you make ice in such a hot country? In a very clever bit of engineering, the Egyptians set trays of water atop straw at the edge of the desert overnight in the colder months of the year, when wind running over and under the trays sometimes was enough to freeze the water into thin sheets of ice. Later in history, the Greek physician Hippocrates wrote of how packing injured body parts in ice promoted healing, one of the few recommendations of Hippocrates that actually turned out to be right. Packing injuries with ice and bringing down fevers sounds like a long way off from induction of hypothermia systematically to slow the metabolism, extending the time that a person can survive circulatory arrest. But the understanding that a drop in core body temperature could have benefits occurred earlier in history than you might think. It happened in the early 19th century, and the key player is our old friend from Podcast 47, the Baron Dominique Jean Leray, chief surgeon of Napoleon Bonaparte's Grande Armée. From that podcast, you may remember Jean Leray as the inventor of triage, the ambulance volante, or flying ambulance, a horse-drawn wheeled vehicle, not to be confused with the air evac ambulances of today that fly for real, and the whole idea of providing treatment to wounded enemy soldiers instead of just letting them die. But Jean Leray also made a milestone discovery on the effects of hypothermia. In reviewing his mortality data one day, Jean Leray noticed that survival was better for enlisted men, common foot soldiers, rather than high-ranking officers with comparable wounds. Why was this? The answer, Jean Leray realized, involved body temperature. In those days, if you were wounded and were, say, a colonel or a major on a cold night, you'd be placed near a campfire to keep you warm and comfy. Anyone else who was wounded... Well, that depended on how much space there was. If you were an enlisted man and there was no room by the fire because there were a bunch of wounded officers, then you were set down on the ground, possibly in the snow, to take your chances. Officers were presumed to have an advantage, but on seeing that warming actually reduced a patient's chances of survival in certain situations, particularly blood loss, Jean Leray reasoned things out and decided that hypothermia could actually be a good thing. 
So the stage was set for Bigelow to get the field of induced hypothermia going a century and a half later. Now, as cardiopulmonary bypass took the glory away from hypothermia over the course of the 1950s and early 60s, another star of medicine was rising up in the form of Dr. Peter Safar. Born in Vienna in 1924, the son of ophthalmologist Karl Safar, Peter had some Jewish ancestry on the side of his mother, Vince Landauer Safar, a pediatrician. While the Anschluss brought Austria under Nazi control in 1938, people who were one-quarter or one-eighth Jewish and who avoided political comments were not targets for extermination, but they were second-class citizens who were typically fired from important positions. Safar's mother lost her pediatrician job, but rather than emigrate, the family remained and availed itself of the assistance of a sympathetic official who was willing to ignore and help conceal Peter's Jewish ancestry, and he was admitted to medical school at the University of Vienna. Upon graduating in 1948 and newly married, Safar emigrated to Hartford, Connecticut, and in 1949 began a surgical internship at Yale and New Haven, then went to the University of Pennsylvania to train in anesthesiology until 1952. After some time in Lima, Peru, he returned to the United States, becoming chief of anesthesiology at Baltimore City Hospital, and then moved to the University of Pittsburgh in 1961. Safar is remembered for transforming emergency care in several ways, most famously as the father of cardiac resuscitation and a pioneer in CPR. But, like Jean Lorray, Safar also reinvented the ambulance. In Safar's case, the motivation was not military necessity, but rather personal tragedy. In 1966, his 12-year-old daughter Elizabeth would die of an acute asthma attack, complicated by the fact that the ambulance service in Pittsburgh lacked the logistical and medical capability that should have been possible. Up to the 1960s, ambulances often were shaped like hearses, as you may have seen in old movies or TV shows, because they actually were hearses, hearses equipped with sirens and lights. Side note, the Ghostbusters vehicle in the original movie was also a hearse. These vehicles, after all, were designed to transport somebody lying down, but there were problems, one being that they were often owned and operated by funeral homes, which sounds like a conflict of interest. And on top of that, the shape of the patient-carrying section of such a vehicle didn't exactly lend itself well to interventions, no matter how simple. It was for transportation only, much like those side pods on those tiny Korean War helicopters depicted on MASH. Safar was one of the people who got the ball rolling on modern ambulances, shaped like a van and carrying emergency medical personnel and resuscitative equipment, the kind of ambulances that we know today. Now one more trivial diversion. Do you know why it's called a hearse? It actually finds its root in the Latin word herpex, which means harrow. Now for the non-farmers out there, including myself, a harrow is an agricultural tool which you may see being pulled behind a tractor that breaks up and smooths the surface of the soil to prepare it for seeding, often after the field has been plowed. The original funeral hearse was a wooden or metal framework that stood over the coffin and supported the pall, which is a cloth that covers the coffin. It would have numerous spikes to hold burning candles, which gave it the appearance of the teeth of a harrow, and so earned the name hearse. From about 1650, the word hearse came to denote any receptacle in which the coffin was placed, including the vehicle on which the dead are carried to the grave, and so the name stuck. Kind of weird, right? But the stories of Jean Leray and Peter Safar also intertwine on account of hypothermia. 
Well aware of the hypothermia studies as the early guidelines for advanced cardiac life support, or ACLS, taking shape in the 1960s, Safar pushed for the inclusion of therapeutic mild hypothermia in resuscitation protocols. He thought that after the return of spontaneous circulation, a patient should be cooled down as a kind of therapy to protect the brain. He was pretty much ignored but vindicated in the early 2000s when the American Heart Association added therapeutic hypothermia to guidelines for managing patients after cardiac arrest, such that today, although there is ongoing debate over when hypothermia should be induced, what the target temperature should be, how long hypothermia should be maintained, and how these things should differ in settings of shockable versus unshockable cardiac arrest, therapeutic hypothermia is both common and proven to increase survival dramatically. Therapeutic hypothermia is furthermore proving itself useful in the management of other medical situations, such as strokes and other brain conditions and injuries, and the same is true in the realm of surgery. We learned in the Bigelow episode that moderate hypothermia at 28 degrees is employed today when cardiopulmonary bypass cannot supply circulation to the brain, namely when the brain is the place where a bloodless field is needed. Hypothermia is further employed in combination with cardiopulmonary bypass at the moderate or 28 degree level, and more frequently as mild hypothermia in the 33 to 35 degree range, with additional local cooling of the heart to lower temperatures called cold cardioplegia. But the story is now moving to deeper levels of hypothermia, where the setting is not cardiac surgery, but trauma with severe blood loss. During his later years at the University of Pittsburgh, prior to his death in 2003, Safar found a research colleague in a younger faculty member, Dr. Sam Tisherman, a trauma surgeon. Working with dogs and pigs, Safar and Tisherman pressed on with Bigelow's dream of inducing profound hypothermia, cooling to temperatures just a few degrees above the freezing point in non-hibernators. As we noted earlier, cooling entails numerous complications, which become much more likely as the core temperature drops, but ironically, severe blood loss either eliminates the complications or renders them moot. To replace volume into blood vessels while also cooling the body, a patient with severe exsanguination, or blood loss, is infused with cold fluids. As injuries are being repaired, the patient is connected to cardiopulmonary bypass, which initially circulates and oxygenates the cool blood, which is relatively dilute of cells because of the addition of fluids. Infusion of red blood cells can wait until later since body tissues are essentially in a hibernation state with little need for oxygen. Then, once wounds are repaired, Cardiopulmonary bypass also helps warm the blood in addition to pumping it. Body temperature can be raised in stages, and the heart can be restarted when body temperature is high enough to support a good heart rhythm, but still low enough to protect the brain and other tissues so that they are not overwhelmed with oxygen. Essentially, this is a kind of suspended animation, a term from science fiction that the Safar Tisherman team actually used in some papers back in the 1990s. Since that time, the procedure has evolved into what Tisherman has been calling emergency preservation and resuscitation for cardiac arrest from trauma, or EPR-CAT. Now, I don't know how that's shortened, but I'm going to say EPRCAT. Developed as an intervention aimed at stalling death for up to two hours of circulatory arrest, the procedure is no longer limited to dogs and pigs. Rather, this EPRCAT is actually a clinical trial based at Tisherman's current location, the University of Maryland, where the experiment protocol has already been used on victims of severe exsanguination 
when standard resuscitation would not be enough. Will it actually work? We'll know after enough patients are treated this way when study results are published, but there are already a couple of reasons to be optimistic. First, the procedure was approved for clinical testing in humans because it works very well in pigs. And second, there is an experience base with accidental hypothermia. Over the past few decades, a handful of people have survived circulatory arrest, hypoxia, or both, occurring in the setting of drowning, snow avalanches, or even stowing away in an unpressurized, unheated well wheel of an aircraft. Let's end the episode with one of these stories. So as one of the most dramatic cases, it's also particularly fitting for concluding this episode of Legends of Surgery because the victim was a surgical trainee at the time. In 1999, Anna Begenholm, a 29-year-old Swede, was living in Narvik, Norway, north of the Arctic Circle, training there as an orthopedic surgery resident because the long hours of daylight in late spring through early autumn made it perfect for her hobby, extreme downhill skiing. Arriving on the mountain around 6 p.m. after a full day of work, she'd have several hours before sunset. That's how things were looking on May 20th when she arrived with two other doctors, Torvin Neshame and Marie Folkenberg, for a downhill run amidst the melting rivers and streams of spring. Although an expert skier who, ironically, had recently completed a snow rescue course, Begenholm lost control on a high-speed turn, fell onto her back in a slide on ice that cracked open, sending her headfirst into the freezing water. At first, she found an air pocket, but her feet and skis were the only part of her sticking up from the ice. The two other doctors grabbed her feet and kept her from sinking deeper while they called the hospital, but they couldn't get her out, nor could police and others arriving at the scene, and it was more than an hour until a rescue helicopter arrived. Anna breathed in the air pocket for 40 minutes, but her core temperature was dropping, and heart block occurred probably somewhere between 25 to 20 degrees, and the helicopter pulled her out 80 minutes after she had entered the water. Her friends began CPR immediately and continued through the helicopter ride to Tromso University Hospital, where another resuscitation team took over. Leading the emergency team at Tromso was Mads Gilbert, an anesthesiologist who examined the 29-year-old skier. Her skin was waxy and ash-white, and her pupils were dilated with no response to light and she was in cardiac arrest, with no shockable rhythm like ventricular fibrillation. In fact, simply no ECG activity at all. A team of more than 100 people worked on her for nine hours, but they'd had experience with this before. They had brought other victims of cardiac arrest from hypothermia back to life using a special protocol. When Begenholm was brought into the OR, her core body temperature was 13.7 degrees Celsius, and she'd been in circulatory arrest for two and a half hours. Nobody had ever survived such a low core temperature and for such a long time without a heartbeat. Surgeons opened her chest to access the great vessels for cardiopulmonary bypass to perfuse the brain and other organs with oxygenated blood, while also enabling rewarming of the body. Begenholm was connected to cardiopulmonary bypass at 9.40 p.m., two hours and 45 minutes after her heart had stopped. 35 minutes later, when her heart was warm enough to beat, the heart was started up with electrical stimulation. It's essentially the same as the process of starting the heart in Tisherman's procedure. By 12.49 a.m., Anna's temperature was normal. Soon, her pulmonary function deteriorated, and she was placed on mechanical ventilation in the intensive care unit. 
After 10 days, she woke up fully conscious and remembering everything up to her fall. She could not move her arms or legs at first, but gradually she recovered from the paralysis and after a month, no longer needed the ventilator. Apart from the heart and lungs, other body systems, such as the digestive system and kidneys, were not working well either, but major systems were back to normal within three months of the accident. Once out of intensive care, Begenholm still had a long rehabilitation ahead. Permanent nerve damage left her with problems in her hands that prevented her from finishing her orthopedic surgery training, but everything else pretty much worked. Today, she is a practicing radiologist, and since her rescue, several others have been revived from profound hypothermia with extended time and circulatory arrest, a couple of them even beating Anna's record for low temperature and time without a heartbeat. So there you have it, folks. Pretty cool, right? Ugh, I hope my puns aren't making your temperature rise. Okay, I'll stop. Let's wrap up this episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, I know I said last time that the next episode would be on gender confirmation surgery, but that's turning into an even bigger topic than I thought, so it might become two episodes. And I have a few other irons in the fire, so we'll see what's ready first. But I promise you they're all interesting. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there. Follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on this podcast or ideas for future episodes. As always, thanks for listening.